we are back for another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. And on today's episode, we're actually going to come at this a little bit different than some of our other episodes. Uh, I had an opportunity to sit down and watch a new documentary that was on Netflix. Uh, I believe the title of the documentary is simply Crack. Um, and it was eye-opening to say the least. I definitely was sitting there like, oh, this is this is very interesting uh, that we're, we're going here with the conversation about what, you know, what transpired uh, with the crack epidemic in the uh, 1980s and bleeding into the 90s and how it even affects us today. And so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation, looking at the economics of it, looking at the public health situation, and uh, really looking at this from a 360 view. And I really am glad that we have a special guest uh, on the line who can actually join in on this conversation. Um, uh, James Bell of Equity Matters Podcast. Welcome to Black Equity Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. For those who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself, your podcast, everything that you have going on in your world. Oh, everything. We'll be here for a while. So <laughs> I am James Bell III. I am a Detroit native proud Detroiter. I am a social worker by training. I'm actually a macro social worker. So for folks who are not familiar with the social work profession, you have macro and micro. With macro, you're looking at more of a focus on organizations, on communities, and I tend to take a look at policies. That tends to be where I reside the most. How are policies impacting individuals? How can we make them more equitable? Um, I actually work for our state health department, so I spend quite a bit of time reviewing and analyzing policy that impacts the entire state. I'm also a doctoral candidate at the University of Southern California. I am actually going to be defending in two months, so say a prayer for me in between listens. I right. am specifically looking at the intersection of race, racism, and health because there's a relationship between the three of them that in many ways helps to shape and influence how people experience the healthcare system and what some of their healthcare outcomes could be. Aside from that, I'm also a proud father. I'm also a proud husband. And I'm just a participant in Black Boy Joy. Oh, man, I'm really excited uh, to have this conversation. For, uh, just a little background for those who want to understand how we got here. I put a post out on Black Equity Network on Instagram about uh, the documentary. And I was telling people to go check this out, go listen to it and reach out if you want to have a conversation around this topic. And James reached out. And here we are today. Um, it was really, it was real simple, real easy for us to, um, uh, make this happen. So for those in the future, if I say, Hey, let, let's talk, do it this way. Let's talk and get this thing going. Uh, I'm really excited, um, uh, that we're, you know, here today. Uh, so let's just kind of open it up and see, uh, just kind of reflections. When you watch the documentary, of called crack, I, I, I was hoping to give it a different name. Because <laughs> just walking around saying, "Hey, did you watch Crack? Did you watch Crack to... today?" <laughs> right. Um, so I'm trying to frame it right way. But what is your reflections when you actually watch a documentary? So when I watched it, you know, I'm an '80s baby, and so much of it hit close to home and things that I, I recall growing up. And growing up in Detroit, many folks may not know the movie New Jack City is actually based off of a Detroit gang, and so that realization or the way that it was portrayed in the documentary is like, I, I remember what this looks like. 
And so also growing up in inner city Detroit, I was, I don't want to say surrounded by substance abuse, but it was definitely something that was close to home. So it resonated in a way was like, this is a part of the experience that I've had growing up. Now, as I watched it, I was pissed, right? Because no matter how many times you hear about political or economic or societal inequities, it's the fact that it's always our folks, our people who are typically impacted the worst. And so being able to hear from different perspectives how these systems interacted with each other to produce disproportionate outcomes for people of color, like it was designed that way. And it, it just, every time I, I think about these incidents, as we'll call them, actually they're, they're crises, they're pandemics, it just gets worse and worse. And so I had a lot of reflection coming from more of the social justice space, because the way that I tend to frame things, they talk about crack, right? And typically they go to poverty as the root cause of substance use. And it's really not, you know, poverty is actually a social condition. And substance use happens to just be a behavior that falls downstream from that. You have to start asking yourself, well, why is there poverty in the first place? The way that I typically approach that is there's three root causes to any oppression that we may see. That's classism, that's racism, and that's sexism. And in watching the crack documentary, I was able to pull all three of those root causes in different instances in that documentary. So when you think about classism, who were they locking up for using crack? People who were poor, right? Who are they locking up for using crack? People who were black, that's racism. And then you get to the sections where they're talking about the black mother and the black mother specifically, we start thinking about sexism, right? The way that we discriminate and manipulate people based on their sexual orientation. There were just so many things going on at one time that I don't even think, I think it was like an hour and a half documentary. There's no way they could have pulled all of those things out, but it's so important to the narrative and the way that we experience that documentary because Poverty is just just a piece of the pie. There's so many other things that are taking place. Well, you know, for me, my reflection on it, I always find it interesting when in history, we will have a documentary come out like this or like 13th with Ava DuVernay. And these documentaries are literally telling us the truth. Right. And then, but then you'll turn off Netflix or whatever uh, streaming service that you have, and you'll turn on the TV, and it's a whole nother story. Because now I flip it on, and they're talking about the great Reagan years. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. Great for who? <laughs> right. I'm like, wait, but I just watched a documentary that just said you know, this wasn't that great. And then literally you turn on CNN, MSNBC, or whoever. And they're like, yeah, you know, when things were better in the 80s, like, wait. Better for and who? So, yeah. And, I, and then I think about one of my favorite TV shows. These are just some of the reflections I had um, watching it. I think of my favorite, one of my favorite TV shows right now, Snowfall on FX. And they're, um, it's a fictional story based loosely off of reality of uh, crack uh, hitting into uh, Los Angeles or Compton, one, one of those areas. Uh, on the on the show and how it expands uh in southern california and how it how he has a direct tie to uh, an fbi cia agent 
and how that's how he's that's the plug for him to get the drugs into his neighborhood. And so as I'm watching the documentary and I'm just putting all the pieces together, I'm like, well, they're literally telling us that the government put these drugs into the community. And then what I think about is this idea that we've been talking about reparations for the last however many years and people never really talk, uh, they never frame it correctly in my opinion. If we're gonna talk about reparations, we should really talk about how this government has repeatedly targeted us. Um, so when I say us, I mean black folk in America have repeatedly targeted black folk in America. And this is just one incident of many that could go towards uh, lost wages, uh, the, the racial wealth gap, um, the prison, uh, the, the, the uh, prison pipeline. Yeah, preschool right? prison pipeline. And so I'm just like, when I'm looking at this, I'm like, we got the truth. The truth is coming out left and right. But then when, when we turn on our reality, which is the, the TV or for right, right now, I'm just going to say TV, because even on the internet, the internet's getting it right in most cases. If you go on Twitter, if you go on these social media channels, everybody knows what the truth is. Uh-huh. It's only when you turn on the television and they're still using that as the operating system of what reality is, is where it's like Joe Biden is saying right now, I've always had you know love and support for black people. I'm like, wait, what about the 94 crime bill? And so these are just some of my reflections, my major reflection that I want to hear from you as well. My major reflection is how warped our reality is, where the truth is right here in front of us, but yet on television and what's currently happening today, it's almost as if they're trying to rewrite the story as if it never happened. So imagine the discourse, right? The fact that the narrative has become that things were so much greater in the the 80s and early 90s. You think about who's telling the story, the story, right? The dominant narrative, who is the author? Who's your narrator? And in many cases, I think that it's always white folks. Like they're the ones telling the story. So yes, they're gonna say, oh, it's completely great for us. But there's another part to that that I also wanna highlight that in the documentary, who came to fix the problem, right? There is this notion that Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign was supposed to go and change everything. And for me, that's a reflection of white saviorism, right? Like, oh my God, I have to go save all the black babies who are born addicted to crack from their their crack mothers. No, no, this whole thing is that we are creating systems where white folks cause the problem. Now they're gonna come fix it. And then once they quote unquote fix it and sweep it under the rug, then they can celebrate it. It becomes their celebration, yet we still have communities that are suffering neglect from it to this day. Or you have communities where there's this newfound reinvestment in the, the, the antique culture that may be there. So you think about gentrification in cities where white folks never were. And I find myself, even when I go back home to Detroit, it's amazing seeing white people running, right? Or seeing white people with their dogs downtown. Like that's something that I never saw before. Like right. I, I can remember growing up in the Cass Corridor, you would see a ton of people without homes. I don't even know where those people are now. So you start thinking about displacement, you start thinking about all the things that were done. But the thing is, people really focus on that feel good story. 
And so Nancy Reagan just gets to be this, this token of hope for white folks. And then there's another thing that, that you made me think about is really just the reflection of the Black experience in the crack epidemic versus what we're doing right now with opioids. And so right. when you start talking about Blackness, you know, crack is a Black drug, quote unquote. But this, the data tells us that every two out of three users were actually white. Right. But now all of a sudden we're in the middle of an opioid crisis and we want to choose public health for once. And we want to take a health approach. And actually, if you dig into the data with that, there's still disparities. There's still instances where African-American and other people of color don't have access to medicated assistant treatment. So thinking about methadone clinics, like there's still barriers when it comes to insurance and coverage for getting that treatment. So for me, it's a matter of what's important to you. Is it important that, you know, we save everybody or that we save people with this white problem? You know, you mentioned, you mentioned the idea of the opioids. And I remember in a recent, maybe within the last year or so, Dave Chappelle had uh, a stand-up uh, special where he was talking about, um, you know, what are we going to do? You know, white people are on drugs. You know, what what can we do? You know, it's just so sad. It's a sad, you know, it's a sad epidemic. And he said, well, I guess just say no. And uh, he was making fun of uh, Nancy uh, uh, Reagan. And I just found that to be very masterful because literally now I was born in 85. Uh, so I don't know if I was necessarily really in tune to it, but as I grew older and I'm looking at the game of our history and how we've been impacted, I just remember basically uh, our society was basically thrown to the side. And I remember the Hillary Clintons of the world, the super predators, and the, I mean, all this stuff that was coming out politically about us. And surprisingly, I even remember there being a point in my life where I started actually believing what they were telling me about me. Not, mm -hmm. you know, most people won't admit that. They'll just say, oh, no, I was always pro black and I, oh, I never allowed anyone to dictate anything. I'll just be quite honest. There was a point in my life. I'm reading, you know, autobiography of Malcolm X. I'm reading about our history. And I'm, at, some, at some point, I had just got exhausted. And I'm wondering, well, maybe we just can't do this thing, right? And this is like 13, 14, 15 years old. And so I, I bring all this up just to say when Dave Chappelle has that special and he says, just say no, and we look at where the epidemic has now, it's almost as if the ties have, have turned. There's no super predator. There's no monster talk or anything yeah. like that. It's, oh, this is a really health concern and we need to do everything possible uh, to take care of these people, which then shows me, in my opinion, which then shows me the lack of humanity that our country, our society has for black people. And then it makes me wonder why, why are black people uh, treated as if they can be discarded and white people must they 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 must get counseling and the right medication and the right insurance why two different sides uh, uh two different approaches for both you know both communities i'm about to go on the high horse of high horses right so tell me when to step off my soapbox 
white supremacy is strong, right? Okay. And so is racism. Now, when I talked about the root causes of oppression, typically my go-to is always institutionalized racism. And the fact that we create systems and structures that actually interact with each other with their own racist tactics to make things worse. And that's, I'll give you an example, preschool to prison pipeline. There is no reason why black and brown children should be disproportionately incarcerated unless you have a racist education system where there's zero tolerance or there's immediate suspension. And then you have a racist juvenile justice system where they just decide immediately as they see black and brown children, they need to be incarcerated. There's no reason for that. But what we do is we take these two systems that already have their own instances of racism and now they're entangled together. And that's what we see across a variety of systems. And that's where structural racism comes to play. And so you think about healthcare, right? And I was gonna say this, this punchline for later, but think about COVID-19. Think about the fact that African-Americans up front were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And you ask yourself why? It is one virus that it can't see color, right? Mm -hmm. But what it can do is it can rely on the effects of racism. You have communities where you've got seven, eight people living in a home. You tell me how they're supposed to socially distance themselves. They can't. You think about prisons for that matter, mass incarceration. Virus gets into a prison. You tell me how are they supposed to get away from that? You can't. You think about people who have jobs in industries where they have to show up to work, where they are essential workers, more likely to contract the virus. Again, it's not a matter, matter of me being Black. It's a matter of these systems were designed in a way that have created disproportionate outcomes and impacts for people of color. And so you take any pandemic, and let's, let's treat crack like what it was. It, it was an epidemic. Mm -hmm. It's going to have the same results. And so as we start talking about, you know, what could we do moving forward? It's about reevaluating our systems and really spending time understanding how and why are people of color disproportionately impacted? And I'm going to tell you, nine times out of 10, it's because of racism. Well, let me throw this out here, because many people will say the system is broken. The system is broken. The system is broken. I don't think it's broken. I think the system <laughs> works how it's supposed to. Is how they and so what concerns me with that is, well, if the system is working out exactly how they want it to, what incentive would these people have to change the system? Yeah, so do they have any incentive? Like if, if I'm doing good, like if I'm winning, why would I want to change things where I, I, I'm not? And right. so that's why I often struggle. I do some consulting on the side around diversity, equity, inclusion, right? And I often wonder, why am I trying to include myself in a space where people don't want me? So why don't I create systems of my own, right? right? Why don't I create my own ownership? Like something that I can call my own where I can invite DJ Moultrie to come and be a part of that system. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not even relying on whatever's happening in the majority. It, it's, it's our thing over here now. And so for right. me, I get tired of like banging my head against the wall talking about, oh, implicit biases, these subconscious attitudes where, you know, you have no control over it. Huh. 
you you have control over what you choose to do with your attitude. So those behaviors that come after the thought, like, oh, I see a black man across the street, I'm going to clutch my purse. You made that conscious decision to do that behavior. And so for us, I think it's a matter of we have to, one, tell the truth. Like, it's racist. We can't do that. We have, we have to either fix that or fix our own. And then we have to do the work, right? It's, it's no longer a matter of, hey, there's a problem over here, guys. What we saw in 2020 was this significant increase of everybody wants to take a stand. Everybody wants to put out their racial equity statement. Like we all believe that we are unified human beings who deserve X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that's great. Those are words on a page. What's more important to me is how are you going to actually demonstrate it? Like I, I just wrote a piece not too long ago about this very thing, like racial equity statements can be so eloquent. I, I love reading them. The, the way they flow off the page is just majestic, if you will. But then I start clicking around on your website or wherever, because, you know, I'm, I'm looking at jobs and then I see your leadership team. I don't see anybody that looks like me. And that's probably. Look at the board and then I look at the board and it's even wider than the leadership team. And so for me, it's a matter of how are we going to move away from we're just saying the things, the things that feel well, the things that make people excited or inspire folks and actually back it up with action. So in many cases, I think we need to, not we, they need to get out of their own way because they're hindering their own progress. If you truly want to be equitable, if you want to create diverse spaces, spaces where people feel like they belong or are included, you need to get out your way. But do they really want to create that though? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. No, I think it sounds good. It sounds attractive. I mean, thinking about our current workforce, like our generation is so interested in diversity, equity, inclusion. Like it's something that's important to folks. Like I know plenty of millennials who are like, I'm about to leave this job because it ain't, it's not a safe space for me. Cool, bet, boom. I can't do that. I got two little ones. I got insurance. So even when there's times where I feel like there's, you know, tension, I have to keep that in the, in the back of my mind. What we can do, as I, I said before, is, is ownership, right? You create your own spaces and then watch those spaces grow. And that's what I've seen with like my own consulting. Like I'm not the one to go out and advertise what I do. People find me because they know, like James, you're a facilitator and you bring this equity lens to the work. And that's so important to me because any space that I'm gonna be in I'm, I'm not going to call you out in a way where you feel offended, but I might nudge and say, hey, you know, the strategies that you're proposing aren't going to work for the people that you think it should. And so I think that's really important, like anything that people put out and not just policies, I think it's products too. Like, how are you ensuring representation? Definitely. You know, something else that stood out to me about this crack documentary was loosely, loosely Snowfall is based off of the life of the real Rick Ross, not the rapper Rick Ross. <laughs> but the real, <laughs> yeah, the real Rick Ross, uh, he built an empire uh, on the foundation of crack and he had multi-millionaires um, he taught them all how to play this game at the highest level. And his plug was 
you know, for lack of a better word, the federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I'm wondering, just to look at it from another point of view, um, and I'm wondering what your perspective is on this, how much responsibility do we also have to look at ourselves and say, we saw an opportunity to make money off the, the destruction of our own community and we chose to move forward with it. The, the bait was standing right there in front of us. We took the bait and uh, we can't blame anyone else but ourselves. Is there any truth to that? I would have to disagree. I, okay. I think there, there's so much more to it than just like blaming ourselves, right? I do agree that there was an opportunity to make money, right? But why would you need to make money if everything was mm. so great in the 80s? Like, wh what was the environment like? Like, what was the what were the employment opportunities? Where were there? Where was there a budding workforce? And if there wasn't one, ask yourself why again. And again, we go back to those root causes. If there's disproportionate um, ink employment rates for people of color, like say you know, in Michigan, at least for some folks, they've removed the check the box from applications, and so people can apply and if they have like a misdemeanor it's not going to flag any system but say in the 80s if there's a whole community of folks who have some petty crime on their record and they can't get a job again we find ourselves in this social condition of poverty where you're trying to do anything to make ends meet but poverty as i said is, is in the middle of things it's a reflection of the fact that there's some decisions that have been made, some laws that have been made, some policies that have been created that are making it difficult for populations that have been disenfranchised, who have been oppressed and marginalized to participate in an economic system that was not designed for them. And it was not designed for them intentionally. So I don't, I don't wanna blame the individual for making a choice to feed their family, right? Sure, people are gonna say, oh, they could have got a job. But what about the times that they went to go apply for that job and they were hired and fired on the same day. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to think about the upstream factors that really influence that experience. There's, there is some truth to that. I, I can see both sides. I can see, I can see how someone could say that you still chose to be destructive to your community. Now, I'm going to jump into fiction a little bit. When I think of uh, one, of my, one of my favorite shows, Snowfall, uh, there's an episode out there uh, on the last season where he started seeing his whole entire community start crumbling in front of his eyes. And um, I think the police officer next door was asking him, uh, you know, do you have any type of remorse? How do you sleep at night? And he sits back in the, the car or the chair or wherever he was. He's like, I sleep like a baby. And he, you know, he's thinking of all the money he's built up and everything else like that. And um, th there has to be, it may not be 100% accountability, but there has to be at least 2%. <laughs> you know I'll what I mean? You, I'll give you 2%, Milk. That's fine. Okay. But my thing is, again, think about the environment, the living conditions. Right. Residential segregation. Like, where, where do I, where am I living, right? If I'm living in subs subsidized housing, if I'm living in the projects, let's just call it what it is, I'm already exposed to this lifestyle. Say that you're exposed to toxins, like you live in an area where there's high lead, you're exposed to this lifestyle. All of these things are connected. And so when you start thinking about the social environment, 
what kind of ads am I seeing? What's the culture around me? What is the media saying? I get, I passed a sign one of the last times I was in Detroit and I saw a Colt 45 advertisement. And I'm like, I haven't seen Colt 45 in forever. But the fact that, you know, you see that and it becomes a part of your experience and then tie it right back to that economic and work environment, like employment, income, retail, what's around you. If none of those things are available and you know, our folks, we're resilient. We're going to do what it has to do, especially if you put our back against the wall. If the only option that I have now is to do something that's going to destroy my community, but I look around and it's already destroyed, I'm not going to take full ownership of that. Why should I? When it's actually corporations and businesses who play a role, when it's government agencies that played a role in that, our schools and other institutions played a role in that. I'm just, I'm just a pawn on the board at this point, but I have to make my move. I respect that. Um... I'm wondering, looking at this documentary, was there anything that you felt that the documentary got wrong or they missed out on, or there's a glaring hole? Anything that you feel that you would have added or taken out? So I do want to say Stanley Nelson was brilliant. Like I I really enjoyed the transitions between users, sellers, and I'll just say everyone else. Like, yeah. I felt a level of empathy listening to people who used that I I can't say that I felt for people who sold. And it was it's for a different reason than they destroyed their community. It was the misogyny for me, like this casual, like you know, if a if a woman had to sell her body to get these drugs, I was gonna take it. Like that to me just kind of got glossed over. Mm-hmm. And then the whole. Um, your mama's on crack rock song. I actually had to look that up because I had never heard that song before. I've never heard that one. Bro, I was I was floored that it was like an actual song. It's like out of it might have been out of Florida when it was like booty bass tracks, but it was just amazing that you know this becomes a part of our discourse. Like this is a part of the way that we tell our story. For me, I wish they would have spent more time being very direct about racism in this instance. I think the only time I heard it, or maybe I saw it was in the description of the documentary. I don't Mm -hmm. recall them actually saying it outright. And so I think that's why in many cases, I think people resort to poverty as the, the problem. Poverty is part of the problem, but there's, like I keep saying, these other root causes that create conditions of poverty that I think you really need to spend more time with And also, I never realized that the Make America Great Again thing wasn't Donald Trump saying. When I heard Reagan say it, it was just like a a ton of red lights. Yep. Like sirens going off, like, oh, this is some racist stuff from, you know, the 80s. This this is not the new racist. This is old racist. And so I think being able to tie that back to a different voice and his voice in particular is like, okay, there's some things that I can see in like 2021 now why this is so detrimental to our communities. Well, there's, there's two things that also stand, stand out to me. One, I'll, I'll go over real quickly, and then also I want to uh, go over what I think I would have loved to see more of. Um, the one that really stood out to me was the White House setup, where they set up the person across the street from the White House. Remember that? Yeah, he didn't even know where the White House was. That was the craziest part. Right. And yeah. that was... And then for that to be done 
as a political move, uh, political theater. Um, I, for me, I believe damn near everything on TV is political theater at this point. True. So I'm, I'm not shocked at it, but the, I guess the level of being everybody being able to find out, because I was waiting to see, well, if this was political theater, how, how long did it take the, the reporters to find out? And damn near the next day, the reporters are in the, in the, in the thing, you know, asking, you know, what, what do you say about, you know, that this person was hired or this was all a setup or, and so it, it wasn't as if they got one over on anybody. People knew that what this person was doing yet, even today, we still are looking back. What, what I find to be problematic is we hold all these presidents and executives in high regard because of the position they held. And then if we attack these presidents, and even now in the middle of an impeachment trial for Trump, one of the arguments is, uh, well, we shouldn't impeach a, a former president. That would look bad for the United States. But I love that argument because that shows you what the argument has always been and what we've been ignoring all this time. We've been ignoring all these different presidents doing all this different stuff and we've just been letting it fly all these years because they were presidents, uh -huh. including Reagan, including the crack epidemic, including the 94 crime bill, including now Joe Biden coming into office and everybody pretending as if he wasn't the biggest uh, proponent to all the issues that are happening right now. I mean, even I think about Anita Hill often, mm. right? Like people forget about her in, in Joe Biden's shadow. Joe Biden was the lesser of two evils as far as I'm concerned when it came down to like our final vote. And I'm not, I'm not fluent enough in like our, our democracy to speak on which option was better. Mm -hmm. I know what I saw for the past four years. I know what I saw on January 5th or January 6th. I couldn't, there's no way that I want to continue to raise my children in an environment like that. So change was necessary. But at the same time, we do need to hold these folks to a higher standard. We do need to have them, you know, be held accountable for their decisions and their actions or inactions for that matter. I would speak to, actually, I'm, I'm not going to speak to that because I'm going to lose my job. Um, I think in many ways, we can't keep making excuses for white folks because they're white folks who, quote unquote, represent this country. It, it's just unacceptable when we have pastors who fall out of favor for far less, yep. you know, pastor took $10 out the, the pool pit and now we're ready to vote them out. That, that doesn't make sense to me. No, you're right. So here's the thing that I think was the glaring piece that I feel like was missing or I would have loved for someone else to explore it. But so you have, the crack epidemic of the 80s, you then have the 94 crime bill, and really it gives birth to the rise of hip-hop music. Mm. Now, of course, hip-hop comes in the 70s and then develops in the 80s, but really hip-hop really pops off during this entire time. And what I would love for people to realize is as the community is dying out, rap and hip-hop goes to another international level during this entire time 
exploiting in many ways the idea and glamorizing, and even in our movies as well, mm -hmm. glamorizing this lifestyle of a cocaine crack dealer that goes to prominence. And so then we look at some of the key players in this game. We look at a Jay-Z, we look at a young Jeezy, we, we look at the, for lack of a better word, the fake Rick Ross. You look at, well, you know, we got to have context here, right? Yeah. I mean, there's right, a real Rick right. Ross. Officer Ross, yeah. Yeah, Officer, thank you. And so I just look at these different things. I look at a, a Tupac Shakur talking about um, on Dear Mama, you know, you was a black queen, but you also was a crack fiend, mama. And so I'm looking at these different uh, social economical uh, situations where what happened ended up being the story that then be not only made people millionaires during the time, but now you're sitting here with uh, a P. Diddy, a Jay-Z, a Dr. Dre, uh, you got multi-billion dollar um, empires, a Master P, a uh, Ghetto D, Ghetto Dope. Uh, so I, I, when I'm looking at how all these different players in hip hop came into prominence for the for the majority of them that rose up, it's through crack. It's through crack. And so again, I feel like think about the narrative, right? Think about the fact that, and I'll I'll put myself out there, like Illmatic is one of my favorite albums of all time. Gotcha. It is okay. it's almost a perfect album. There's one song in there I could do without. Okay. But okay. there's many times where I think about the fact as you describe over time, it became a commodity, right? You now have created a product in these artists who are building themselves up off of the backs of people who have died because yes. of substance use. And so if I can create an artist, a template, right? I'm going to take a Nas and I'm going to flip it and make another Nas. And now I've created a label of these folks. But we don't always see Black folks at the top of these record labels. I mean, I think Master P gets a pass because what he did, I think, was a little unorthodox. I'm still trying to finish his documentary. But I think what you see is this industry was built on that. But who built the environment <laughs> to create this space? I so you go back to the white folks again. So it's like, all right, white folks put crack into the community. We're going to let the black man rap about crack. That's great. That sounds good. You're selling records. You're making money. I'm going to sign you. I'm going to sign a bunch of you who can go sing these songs. I'm going to profit in the end. And I'm going to give you a terrible deal that's going to mess things up along the way. Right. And so you then you just start to think about, again, this idea of the white savior. Like, they're at the top profiting off of the backs of people literally dying because of crack or because of any other substance. Make it make sense. It, it's just the fact that there's an environment that has been created an industry that has been created that has commoditized. I don't think that's the right word I would want to use that has created a commodity out of black folks, black folks, pain, black folks suffering, and they're making money off of it. And I don't think people really consider that like granted. I mean, I'll listen to a Jay-Z album. I'll listen to reasonable doubt to this day, but you start thinking about the things that he's talking about. You think you start listening to 22-2s, you listen to regrets, and you get into the details of the lines. And 
Yeah, he probably sold drugs to someone that was close to him. It, are we mad at Jay-Z for selling drugs? Or are we mad at the person who hired Jay-Z to talk about selling drugs for the purposes of making money? Can we not be mad at both? Oh yeah, we can be mad at both, but I don't think we typically do. Mm. I don't think we ever care about the labels. Like, we care about the artists. That's true. Um, but it's not just the music, you know, it, it's, then I look at a show, like I mentioned Snowfall, but then I look at The Wire, which is regarded as one of the best shows ever. It and, is. Well, you know, that's arguable, arguable. <laughs> uh, let me tell you why I, I'm tending to lean towards Snowfall over The Wire. Let me tell you why. The, the whole idea of looking at things from a global perspective, to me, is an eye-opener for the, for the audience. You know, when I look at The Wire, Baltimore, of course, season two, you bring the Greeks in and what's happening in. Uh, we, we see the, the drugs coming through the, the, docks, man. Uh, the docks, right? What a season. But, <laughs> but when I look at uh, snowfall and I'm like wait this is coming from a whole nother country and the government is okaying this when they're going to pretend like they're not okaying this to me I mean yeah we can get into who has the better writing who has a better yeah. cinematography who has a better characters okay yes have that argument what I'm talking about when I say I'm leaning towards snowfall I'm looking at the government uh, corruption now of course the Wire is also talking about the local political corruption right. of the actual uh, the mayors and the Senate politicians, and the senators. Yes. So they both do their thing. Don't get me wrong. But man, for us to be talking about the damn CIA or the FBI, whoever, which one he is, for us to be talking about that and exposing like this is really happening in the middle of the, the government telling us to trust them over and over again, it's just to me eye-opening. But let me let me do this point. I, I, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this. So we're looking at these different music uh, giants rise up, but then it's also littered through our entertainment as well, through the wires, through snowfall, through these different uh, shows and movies that just keep repeating it over and over. Uh, Narcos, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, drugs, the Ozarks. Now that's a whole nother. Uh, thing that's not directly tied to the yeah, crack more laundering, but yeah, but yes, but when I start looking at the the drugs, drugs has become one of the most popular genres of cinema. Drugs, so everybody's getting rich off of this, besides the people who got infected by this uh, epidemic, and to me, that's the the scary part. And then it makes me think just slightly about marijuana mm. and how marijuana was also uh, somewhat of an epidemic, maybe not to that extent, but as far as people going to jail over it. Right, right. And then now white people are coming in. They get to Capital. own the marijuana companies. Black people can't get access to the marijuana companies. And it's, it's, it's really the same story all over again. Yep. What are your thoughts? I'm sorry. Oh, bro, you didn't open up a can. So 
the legalized marijuana thing is so interesting. So you go back to like the 50s and the 60s and you start talking about reefer madness, right? Like, oh my God, mm-hmm. these kids are smoking reefer. Reefer is such a, a funny word to me. It reminds me of autobiography of Malcolm X too. And in many ways, I think it's the stigma that made the difference. And mm. so marijuana, you smoke marijuana one time, you get high, cool, you'll smoke a joint later. You use crack, now you're a crackhead, right? Right. And, and white folks don't use crack as the narrative that they sell you. They push it down your throat. Like they, they're using cocaine, they're cutting up their fine lines with a razor or with an American Express card. Mm. And the way that that's portrayed, and then you end up with songs like Your Mama's on Crack Rock. And just the way that we've taken the stigma that comes with crack, I think that's what makes things worse in that case. Thinking about marijuana, that's an opportunity, right? I get upset when I think about the fact that there are still black and brown bodies in prison right now for having, you know, a dime bag of weed on them. Like that doesn't make sense to me when there's now billionaires out here growing plants all over the place. And it's an industry that people participate in engaging in, but no one's taking the time to reverse the laws or to look at the fact like, oh man, he had a joint off. But this man is locked up. He, his record, whatever record that may be, is completely ruined. How can that man get a job when he comes home? Probably not. And then we see ourselves in a cycle of what I've described previously of being stuck in poverty. And so what we've done is we've created another system, an access point for people to come into, leverage and capitalize. I'm about to get rich off of weed. And I'm gonna slide out. When you've got people who are doing time for far less. Like when you think about it, as you described, like the face of people who are making money off the cannabis, the cannabis industry, it don't look like us, but right. when you start looking at the people who are represented in the prison industrial complex, that looks like us. And the fact that no one's talking about that, like that, that, that bothers me. I remember I was attached to a research project once like, oh yeah, we're going to dig into medical marijuana. And that's when it was just, you know, medicinal back then. I was like, if we're not talking about advocating for people to get out of prison, I don't want to be a part of this project. Right. Yeah, it, to me, it's uh, one of the biggest hypo- um, hypocrisies in uh, modern day uh, history to literally have people sitting in jail about a thing that people are becoming billionaires over. Mm-hmm. It, because you got to remember, we're watching a documentary, uh, what, 30 years later, 90s, 2000s, 2020. We're looking at a documentary that's looking back 30 years and seeing how it all played out. And we're in the middle of a documentary happening right now in real life where <laughs> look how this is playing out. And, and we're, we're, we're kind of paying attention to it. It's just, it's, to me, it's like people are only paying attention to what they want to pay attention to that fits their narrative and yep. fits whatever momentum is currently happening within the political system. That because last to me, these, these things shouldn't take this long to take care of. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that last piece is key. Like, does it benefit me? And if it benefits me, then I can participate, I can engage. But if not, I'm gonna step back and I'm just gonna let y'all do what y'all wanna do. Right. 
so we we went through this documentary. I uh, want to let people know how they can uh, find your podcast, how they can connect with you, how they can partner with you. Uh, and then after that, we'll, we'll do one last question before we head out. So how can people collaborate? Sure thing. So the best ways to reach out to me, I am on Twitter. That is probably where I spend a bulk of my time. And my handle is at is JB3. And that's J-B-T-H-R-E-E. -E. I am also on Instagram with the same name. I'm trying to be consistent across platforms. I also host the Equity Matters podcast. That is at Equity Matters podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn, which I'm starting to use more frequently. Um, James Bell III, you, you'll find me. Um, Working on a website, but working on a website in the middle of a pandemic while you're also getting ready to defend is not a very wise choice. So at some point that'll that'll come out. I'm thinking maybe before the fall. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, I would say those those social media platforms are probably the best way to reach me. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, coming on the podcast today. I do want to ask one last question um, and just have our final discussion before we head out. Um, what do you think comes from this? What do you think this documentary does? Does it do anything? Does it, does it cause anything to happen? I thought the 13th documentary was gonna change the mother gang. And I, I'm still looking like, wait, this wasn't part of the election cycle. Nobody came out saying we'll end the 13th amendment. That should have been the number one selling point. And so I'm wondering what, the, what do these documentaries do? What does the truth even do? What does the truth even do? That's that's like memoir ready right there. Um, I think what it does for most of us is it creates opportunities, one for dialogue, which I think is really important. I think we underestimate the role of dialogue in facilitating change. I think we often jump straight to advocacy, like we need to go do the thing. No, I think we need to collect more data, right? I think we've had time to sit, I mean, what, we're 30 years removed from the 80s. I think Oh, my math is bad. Close to 40. So I think what we could do is start to look at the opportunities that we have. So yeah, reversing the drug laws. Let's let's do all of that because there's no reason why crack and cocaine have different sentencings. I mean, I was thinking about this earlier, like, are you going to get more mad at me because I have ice in my cup or water in my cup? Like that, that doesn't make sense because they're the same thing, but you're going to treat them as different. I think it's also an opportunity for us to not be colorblind, right? We, we have to really address the fact that crack was a Black issue in the sense that it impacted Black folks worse. Opioids is a white issue, quote unquote. Black folks still getting hurt worse in this situation. And I don't think we have a position to say, oh, you know, everybody, everybody's doing bad here. No, every, there's people who are doing worse than bad. And so I think we have to change the way that we talk about it. I don't want to, I don't ever want to hear a Yo Mama's on Crack Rock song in the 2020s. That's, that's terrifying to me. But also I think the way we look at public health right now and you think about crack and its relationship to COVID, right? It's, you wouldn't tie those two things together, but they're built on the same infrastructure. And the fact that one community is being disproportionately impacted why? And it's the fact that we've created systems where people are positioned to be more vulnerable. 
And so as we move into this recovery stage of COVID-19 and people are getting vaccines and you start looking at the data and you see, well, why aren't Black folks getting a vaccine like everybody else? And we can't automatically go to the idea of, you know, Black folks don't trust the medical or healthcare system. It's because of racism, y'all. Like, let's call it what it is. And it's the fact that we have to find ways to disrupt these systems in order to foster health and also to foster justice. And so I think watching documentaries like these inspire folks like you, that inspire folks like me, inspires other people to go out and start doing the work. And so it's my hope that, you know, we'll all find each other one day and we'll be motivated enough to like, you know, dismantle Capitol Hill to really say, hey, y'all, y'all can't find a local drug dealer and sell some crack so that Ronald Reagan or George Bush can get on TV and talk about it looks like candy. <laughs> like that, right. that just doesn't work. So I think what watching these documentaries does, it inspires us to do more with the opportunities that we do have. I thank you for coming on Black Equity Podcast. I'm looking forward uh, to listening to your podcast and some of the content that goes around uh, this conversation. I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing the work that you're going to do in this particular area. So thank you so much for coming on Black Equity Podcast. The doors are open. Uh, to come back again, especially if there's another documentary that hits our culture and it has uh, something to do with equity, which most things do. All things uh, do. So I uh, look forward to uh, having that conversation with you. I, actually, I don't know if I am going to look forward to it because I don't know what the subject matter will be, <laughs> but I'll That's enjoy rough. the conversation nonetheless. Oh, yeah. And and the doors are open for you as well. I think there's a great opportunity for us to to cross-collaborate and you know being able to tell your story on a different podcast so if let's you're ever it, open, let's do it i look forward to it thank you for coming on black equity we'll talk again soon